It's good to see you all in the house of the Lord this morning. We're glad to be together again. For those of you who haven't been able to meet, my name is Amy Winkle. I am um, serving as the priest in charge currently while Jenny is on maternity leave. And as always, it's just great to be, be with you in the house of the Lord. So um, I look forward to continuing to get to, to meet and know all of you um, over the days ahead. Before we move into our text this morning, I want to invite um, Winston Persad to come up. Um, Winston is a member of the Emmanuel community and of the Jubilee Task Force. Um, the task force has been meeting since the fall, working on a strategic plan for Emmanuel. Um, and that strategic plan is meant to help us be, become a place and continue to be a place where people of all races, ethnicities, and classes belong, are celebrated and empowered within our church. So it feels fitting that um, on this weekend, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, weekend, um, as we celebrate the holiday tomorrow, that we want to make space in our service today to recognize and to celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King, but also um, African-American churches within our local community here who have faithfully served and lived out the gospel among us. And so Winston is going to come and um, share with us. So thank you, Winston. Thank you so much, Amy. Hello, my name is Winston, and with Jamie and Caleb and Michaela and Tyler and Idris and Georgiana, the different kids that live with us or have lived with us, I've been attending Emmanuel since its inception a couple of years ago. And this church means a great deal to me and my family, and so I want to take a moment and recognize the significance of this weekend as tomorrow, obviously, we'll be celebrating MLK Day. And this holiday will be commemorated by people all around the world, but for us as Atlantans, on the east side in particular, this day holds a different type of weight. Oftentimes, churches can plant into new areas of a city without understanding the tapestry of faith communities that have laid down what many traditions mark as witness in that particular set of zip codes. Certainly, we are guilty of this as well. Churches like ours can follow many times without knowing the trends and attitudes of gentrifying businesses that, when unchecked, can create communities of people perpetuating the divisions that we sing against each Sunday. There's a lot that perpetuates this division that keeps us from even knowing our neighbors unjust zoning and housing codes that put people into tribes, not to mention our own tendency to isolate from and gravitate towards similar folks. But part of being faithful Christians in a space is recognizing that we live, work, and play on soil and in a story that was shaped before we got here. As a value following James Davidson Hunter, we call this faithful presence. That said, celebrating Dr. King isn't simply a practice in honoring our native son's legacy, but it is a true exercise in collective remembrance of how that legacy shaped this city and empowered networks of largely African-American congregations that have given shape to what being a Christian in Atlanta looks like for a very long time. In fact, our church is so fortunate to have inherited years of faithful witness from churches in our neighborhood. For example, Thankful Missionary Baptist, which was formed in 1882 
and is the oldest African-American Baptist church in Decatur and the second oldest in DeKalb County. A school teacher, Lewis Thornton, became the first reverend of Thankful Missionary Baptist. It was originally located in an old schoolhouse, but they eventually ran out of room. So one of the deacons milled the pine to expand the church himself that would house the congregation until it was destroyed by a fire in 1970, nearly 90 years after the church's existence. Or Israel Missionary Baptist, which began as a prayer meeting in 1916 and hired their first pastor during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. They purchased a home for $100 down and $10 a month that became the first sanctuary. Israel Missionary Baptist survived and thrived through Jim Crow segregation, with their lead pastor being installed in 64 and serving for 55 years before retiring in 2018. This is the context in which we are actively doing ministry. Because of these houses of faith, we benefit from the prayer of the saints, care for the poor, cultural products, and civic sustainability. The way we do church in Atlanta, here or on our streets, will forever be influenced by Dr. King's call and his response to that call. These are the shoulders that we stand on. Finally, obviously, I'm up here as a representative of the Jubilee Task Force, which is a coalition that exists to help our church become a place where people of all races, ethnicities, classes, and abilities are celebrated and empowered to shape the ethos and direction of Emmanuel so that we might become a community that reflects the diverse cultural makeup of Atlanta while speaking to and countering the injustices of our city. This reflection underscores that aim and provides a moment to acknowledge the ways in which we belong to each other and the communal witness from which we are formed, possibly without even knowing. Thank you, Jesus. So in light of this, I want to pray the following prayer from Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved you with our whole hearts, our souls, and our minds, and we have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile but dare not travel the second. We forgive but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But you, O oh God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Winston. I'm so thankful that during the season of Epiphany, we have the opportunity to not only see where Christ is revealed in our current day and time, but also that we're able to look back and see the faithful presence of Jesus working in our 
um, and through our faith communities that have come before us, congregations that span ethnicities and races, the witness of the church and how it has lived out the faith throughout time. We are thankful for the opportunity to pause today and tomorrow and going forward to praise the Lord that he is not bound by space and time, nor by prejudice and division. Instead, the kingdom brings all believers together around the throne of God. And Epiphany reminds us that we are witnesses to that kingdom in our lives here and now. So may it be so, Lord. Help us, Lord, to live out your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So as we continue our Epiphany journey, we're hanging out in the book of Matthew. Um, As we talked about some last week, the Gospel of Matthew is chiefly concerned with showing that Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of God as revealed in the Old Testament and through the Jewish people. Jesus is the embodiment of God's promises to his people and to the world. And it is through Jesus that the blessing of God reaches beyond Israel to all people. So Matthew is looking back to the promises of Israel and forward to God's redemption of all people through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so in that light, we're going to continue our study um, today, um, turning again to Matthew 3. We're actually going to pick up right where we left off last week. So um, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Let's read the text. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so when we think about where we left off last week, we were talking about how John had some pretty vivid images of what would happen when Jesus came on the scene. Remember when he's talking about how there's one who's coming after me, and this one is going to baptize you um, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork will be in his hand to set things right and bring justice by separating out the good and the weighty things that will remain and the evil and the chaff that will be blown away. And John is right. Jesus does all of those things. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire, absolutely. Setting all things right and separating out good from evil, yes and amen. And yet, the way that Jesus comes is not necessarily the way we might expect him to come to do those things. That when Jesus shows up on the shores of the Jordan, he may not be as out front as we expect him to be. He may not be as commanding as would suggest that someone in his, in his place might be. Instead, what we see is Jesus showing up in the crowd among the people. So when I try to imagine this scene, what I think about is Jesus walking along the shore having conversations learning about people's lives, their joys and their struggles, waiting with the others for his turn to get into the water. What we don't see is Jesus coming in hot, demanding to move to the front of the line, asserting his privilege as the Son of God, taking this whole thing over and making it all about him. 
Instead, what we see is him walking with and identifying with those around him, seeking to understand what it means to be human, to walk out this life in flesh and blood. I think that's why he wants to be baptized, not because he has need of repentance, but because it's where his people are. And he chooses from the very beginning to work from the ground up, to experience life as we do, and pave the way that leads to our salvation through his death and resurrection. When we look at um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. And so, out of this, he says to John, it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Basically, what I think he's saying is, this is the right thing to do. It may seem strange to you. This may not might be something that would be like, um, just come naturally. But this is really the right thing to do. Now, for John, if you could imagine being in John's foot, his, in his shoes and his footsteps, this was not what he expected. Like the idea of him baptizing Jesus, no way. Come on. Like that's not how this is supposed to go. It's supposed to be the other way around. He didn't expect Jesus to show up like this to get into the water and ask to be baptized. But when Jesus insists, John relents and chooses obedience, even when it doesn't make sense to him. And the result of Jesus' humble obedience is the fullness of God on display. This is one of those moments in Scripture where we see the Trinity just manifested in such an obvious way, a vision of the Trinity right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. One, we see, we see the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, not as fire, because that comes later. And second, we see the voice of God the Father affirming Jesus as his Son, in whom he is well pleased. Now, I believe that God's pleasure in Jesus is for who he is as God's Son, but I also wonder if his pleasure also affirms Jesus' choice to be baptized, his choice to walk in the way of his people, not to stand outside of them. That the Godhead shows up in this moment to show how Jesus is not only representing the people before God, but is also showing them what God is really like. Showing God to his people. And so, when we come to this text, what does it have to say to us? What might there, what might there be for us in this text? When I think about John and how um, his expectations were challenged in this moment, how he expected Jesus to show up in power, and yet Jesus chose to show up in humility instead. I think about my own life, and I wonder if, like, for you as well, when we look around us and we see a sense of brokenness and sin, when we see hurts and injustice all around us, it just feels natural that we want God to show up in some kind of mighty way, in some obvious way, powerful way to bring his judgment to set things right. And God can and he will do that. But the reality is, is that sometimes, and maybe a lot of times, it looks different than what we're expecting. What do we do when we expect the Spirit to come as fire and he shows up as a dove? 
Or when we expect Jesus to show up with his winnowing fork and instead he gets into the water with us. When God shows up this way, I think it's easy for us to see that, to think of him as being distant or absent. To imagine that he just doesn't really care. But maybe the reality is instead that instead of him being absent, that he really is closer than ever. That he really is right there beside us. That he chose to get in the water with us. This moment made me think of another moment in 1 Kings 19. When Elijah is waiting to hear from the Lord in a moment of desperation. And I want you to listen to the words of Elijah as he's like he's pouring out his heart before the Lord. So you can see where he is. So 1 Kings 19 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And here's how Elijah answered. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. So the voice of the Lord said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him. God's coming will not always match our expectations. And yet, we don't need to assume that because he doesn't come as we expect, it means that he hasn't come at all. So as we continue to walk through Epiphany, it feels appropriate to ask the Lord, how is Christ being revealed to us in unexpected ways? The reality is, is that maybe we're looking in one direction and expecting God to show up in a certain particular way, and yet really he's here, but he's showing up differently. The Spirit is moving in ways that we don't understand. The thing with John that I think is interesting is that when Jesus shows up in a way that was different than his expectation, he relents and is obedient to follow the way of Jesus. And so I wonder for us how we might follow John's example, how we might listen for the voice in the silence, even when we would rather see the fire. It requires trust believing that God's ways are higher than our ways, but that in all he is good and trustworthy, just like we sang this morning, and that, and that he is working all things together for good according to his purposes, to bring about healing and redemption in, way, in his ways and in his time, and that our job is to join him and to follow him in that mission. And so I wonder for you, in your day-to-day life, how you might be looking for God to show up, And how he might be already there, inviting you to join him in what he's doing. And may we, in this season of Epiphany, really like hone in on that and look for those ways that God's working that may seem unexpected, that may seem different than what we were expecting, but that really are moving the kingdom forward. They aren't powerless, they're full of power. 
it just looks different than the way we might want to wield power, the way we might want to show up. And yet it is the way that the Lord has come to us. So may we have eyes to see and ears to hear him. May it be so, Lord. Amen.